You don't believe in witchcraft. Do you? Do I believe in witchcraft? What kind of witchcraft? The legendary witch that rides on the imaginary broom, the hex that tortures the thoughts of the victim, the pin stuck in the image that wastes away the mind and the body. Also imaginary. But where does imagination end and reality begin? What is this twilight, this half-world of the mind that you profess to know so much about? How can we differentiate between the powers of darkness and the powers of the mind? Housewife of horror and mister of horror <laughs> and we are here to wish you listeners a happy spooky and safe halloween that's right yes it is that's what it is <laughs> it's halloween it is the most wonderful time of the year one of them and what a great time to cuddle up with someone you love or loathe and listen to the not a bomb podcast and the discussion of Oh, the 1957 film, Night of the Demon. Mm. It is, in fact, the Night of the Demon. It is, yes, indeed. Yes, the veil is quite thin. They yes. just popped right on through. <laughs> they sure Welcome. do, invited or not. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, if I maybe accidentally invited them, I don't apologize. Whoopsie doodle. I'm not sorry. I'd do it again. Oh, my. Well, we better let the listeners get back to Not a Bomb. Yes, enjoy Not a Bomb. Some days it's... Really difficult to get rid of a bomb. Oh. So I'm glad it's not one. All right, Batman. Well, mm-hmm. happy Halloween. Welcome back, ghouls and ghosts, to the final Spooktober episode from your favorite podcast, Not a Bomb. I am your host, Troy, and with me always is the um, very spooktacular Brad. How you doing tonight, Brad? I am doing wonderful. What an intro. Yeah, we had um, a surprise visit from two of our favorite horror hosts, um, Housewife of Horror and Mister of Horror, stop by, and um, you know, wish everybody a happy Halloween, uh, and and do a little intro for for tonight's film. What is that, Brad? Well, it kind of depends on where you are. So in the United States, we call it uh, Curse of the Demon. In a good old uh, London town, they call it Night of the Demon. So we're going to call it Night of the Demon. Because that's uh, the better version. Okay, good. Um, and what's funny is I this is my pick. We're episode twenty, which uh, I mean, truth be told, I'm a little shocked we made it this far. Started. I know. know <laughs> this was this was our little COVID experiment that uh, had you know has some legs and keeps going. But um, I discovered this movie, and I can't remember which TV show I was watching. Um, and and it was the older. Uh, um, or not older, but the the U.S. cut, the 82-minute version. Um, and I remember growing up on one of the um, horror hosts, I think it was um, Cremacia Mortem for Creature Features. She was out of Kansas City at the time. So this is, this is like early 80s. And I, I can't remember if I that's where I saw this film, um, which is why I wanted to talk about it. But, I mean, Brad, are, are you... Are you a fan of, of movies that are done by horror hosts or sort of the horror host genre in general? See, that's weird. Like, I never was into that stuff. My first kind of exposure was, like, Tales from the Crypt um, on HBO. Oh, okay. Um, that was kind of my... 
I mean, he was kind of a horror host. I mean, he introduced the, sh- you know, the shorts and stuff like that. So yeah. I always consider him, but that's kind of where my reference is. Like I am not a Elvira. Um, who's the other guy who's on shutter all the time. Now. Oh, Joe Bob Briggs, Joe Bob. See, I don't have any nostalgia or any sort of point of reference for that stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I was late to horror, like growing up, um, or I was just like in a different circle. Um, you know, I wasn't into like the B movie type stuff. Oh, okay. Um, well, my and that's, stuff was... that's where a lot of it resides too. I mean, they, yeah, it, it's, it's really the horror host, which is this, you know, personality that not only introduces the film, but kind of, you know, goes in and out of it. So Elvira, Joe Bob Briggs, or, you know, the, the iconic ones. Um, I thought for the longest time I was the only one um, that just really dug horror host until, um, I think it was Indianapolis when we were at um, Horror Hound and they have an entire like row of just horror hosts that uh, congregate. And I did not understand how big of a thing this still is. And that that's how I found um, Suburban Screams. So I don't know if you have a Roku or Amazon Prime or something of that nature. Yes. They're, they're Both. T- yeah. Okay. So Roku, this, this is how I discovered it. Roku has a ton of different channels and there is a channel out there that's sort of dedicated to... Um, B-movies, horror hosts, stuff like that. And I ran across um, the show Housewife of Horror and just kind of fell in love with it. I, it it's, it, I, I love, I love the, the hosts. I mean, they're, they're just, they're, the thing about horror hosts is um, there's so many different wide varieties uh, of personalities out there. And I think it really comes down to, you know, the, the humor is always going to be a little schlocky, but it's all about the personality. Like who is, who yeah. do you want to sit down and watch one of these B movies with? You could almost kind of say that about podcast hosts as yeah, well. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the visual version of the podcast, but um, what, what I, what I love about this show is, I mean, th- this would be um, the couple that I wish lived next door. Um, they're just super charming. It's um, suburban screams is a, is a Roku channel. And on the channel, you will find the housewife of horror show. Uh, and it's co-hosted by her and Mr. of Horror. It's an Illinois-based TV show. Um, if, if you just want to kind of dip your toes into it, strongly encourage are they, you. Aren't they right next door to Mr. Wayne and, and Garth at the public access? Uh, could be. Where were they I based, don't know. Weren't they based out of <laughs> Illinois? Yeah, they're an Illinois show too. Yeah. Um, but no, I, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, check out, like my favorite thing that they've done so far is sort of their um, Halloween special. I think the 2019 one is up there. They should be getting ready to post this year's anytime soon. Um, I, I keep bugging them about it. But uh, the, the cool thing of what they're doing next year is um, there is going to be a Suburban Screams Film Festival. So the date of that, um, should everything calm down, travel open up, and things kind of go back to normal? Oh, yeah, we're looking October. God, I hope. <laughs> yeah, we're looking October 16th to 17th next year at the Hollywood Palms Theater in uh, Naperville, Illinois. Um, and they're taking submissions right now. So um, I strongly just go to, I th- you know, just Suburban Screams Film Festival. Search it out. Um, we'll try and put links uh, on our show notes for this if you go to the website. Yes. Um, and any of our film friends, if you have a short or film out there, you know, get that thing submitted and definitely tune into these two. They're, they're just a lot of fun to watch. My whole family watches them, so we, we just enjoy it. Yeah, I thought your daughter was a big fan, right? Like she's the, she's a huge she's the one that um, is is sort of the avid. Hey, have they posted anything yet? 
and and if there is we'll sit down and uh and definitely watch it so it, it was it was a fun little surprise that they sent that to us and eternally grateful for um them participating and and introducing tonight's um movie which is night of the demon from 1957 so brad this is this is a black and white scary movie right yes it is so um before we get into this one i mean i don't know what What's your what's your take on black and white movies? I mean, a lot of people they like horror movies, um, and you know they they might dip their toes into something that's colorized in the '60s or '70s, but it seems like black and white is a hit and miss for a lot of people. I, I have to admit, now um, what I love about black and white is how the restoration process has made those films look so beautiful. Now, um, this is not a horror movie. But when I saw Seven Samurai in Blu-ray and it was like oh, on the yeah. big screen, like it looks amazing. And I think you can get, I mean, look, you either like black and white or you don't. And right. um, aesthetically, I like it um, if it's done really well. Um, obviously, Kurosawa is probably the best. Um, him and Hitchcock, obviously. Um, but I, I just kind of like the way it looks like. I don't know, it makes me feel a little fancy. Um, not going to lie. Uh, you know, throw in some subtitles there and, you know, I feel really feeling really fancy, but no, I, I like the aesthetic. Um, I think when done right, it looks beautiful, almost better than as they say, technicolor. Like I, I think, you know, it, it can look even as spectacular as anything in color. So, um, Oh, I agree. It's, yeah. I mean, it's a different, it's a different canvas, right? You're painting on a different canvas. Um, I, I think I got hooked on it with film noir specifically. So as you talk about Kurosawa, yeah. some of the Blu-rays that were coming out um, for film noir just kind of blew me away. And I'm, I'm, I'm super excited that more and more movies are getting attention and restoration because if you, if you watch something where you have a good director, a good cinematographer and how they play with shadows in a film, I think it's super effective and there are so many good horror films that came out. I would say, uh, you know, even today you, you have some people who shoot um, black and white. I think Fincher's new film Mank, Mank is, is going to be yes. yeah, black and white, but you, you need an auteur to, to use it correctly. I think, yes. <laughs> um, what, what are some of your favorites or do you have like a top three, five? Yeah. I, I made a list. Like there are some that it feels like every year I'm kind of going through and revisiting cause I just love them. So yeah. Much. So the first one, I mean, I have two like huge ones, like their Mount Rushmore movies. And then one, mm-hmm. it's probably a little bit lesser known. Um, my number three would be like night of the living dead. Um, yes. from 1968, That's on my list obviously too. George Romero. Yeah. Um, so I looked at it, a hundred and fourteen, thousand dollar budget a movie made 30 million dollars um in 1968 so huge huge success um and for the longest time like a public domain film like that that was out on every vhs tape everybody you know was distributing it because they they didn't copyright it out of the game yeah so if i mean i think in any kind of horror 101 class like that's one of the first movies that they would would probably show um you know and I, I, I was mentioning to you last night, I watched a documentary. I know it was originally on Shudder, but um, Amazon Prime has it. Um, it's called History Noir, which is like goes through no horror noir. I'm sorry. Horror noir. It, horror noir, it goes yeah. through the history of African-American horror cinema. Um, 
And um, of course they hit on uh, Night of the Living Dead because one of the characters is black, but he actually happens to live quite a bit further than um, kind of the trope would indicate. So um, yeah. Do you want me to go through all, all of mine? In the yeah, game? go okay. through. I, and more, if you have more than three, I mean, let's talk about it. I, the, these are, this is the type of list that if people um, like horror movies, but they just haven't really gone anything uh, or checked out anything that's just older than like the 1970s stuff, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or, you know, um, it, just anything beyond that period. I, I think providing a good list and saying, hey, this is the cream of the crop. I, I think everybody knows about Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Um, but man, I... Some of my pits go back to like 1922. Okay. So. Okay. Um, my number two was is probably going to be a one that's a little bit more obscure, but is not if you kind of know the genre. It's The Innocence from 1961 um, yes. from Jack Clayton. Fan- just an amazing and Criterion, I think, has, yes. has that out. And it is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Um, it is a beautiful film. Um, so when I went back to kind of watch that, probably the last. I don't know, five years or so that criterion version you're talking about. Um, there's a lot of stuff about like sexual, uh, regression in that movie. Uh, yeah. the, the woman who watches after the kids is, you know, so yeah. yeah. So I don't want to get into it because I think people should see that. And movie. you don't want to spoil it either. That, that, yeah. That's one. It's a slow burn. You, you want to take your time with it, but I'm telling you, it, it's worth it's, it. It's a gorgeous film. It's a fantastic story. It's a great Halloween pick. And my number one, Troy, I don't know if you've ever heard of this movie. It's uh, from a director named Alfred Hitchcock. Um, he made it in 1960. <laughs> that, that name sounds familiar. 1961. No, I'm sorry, 1960. Sorry. Um, it's a little film called Psycho. Um, oh, tell me more, Brad. Uh, that sounds interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a small movie. Again, I looked at the budget versus uh, uh, box office. Um, $800,000 makes... $50 million um, and is pretty much regarded as probably the first kind of example of a slasher film. You know, one of the biggest horror movies of all time, you know, Hitchcock is a master in atmosphere and tension and pretty much everything. Um, you know, I, and I had forgotten that North by Northwest was the film he did before psycho. And then he, you know, he goes and makes psycho after that. So it's like, you know, he's just, doing all sorts of stuff at this time and is pretty much have this run of amazing film after amazing film. So, um, that, that's such a good pick. Cause as many times as I watch it and I just picked up that, um, Hitchcock, uh, 4k set yeah, they did yeah. with rear window psycho, et cetera. I haven't, I haven't watched birds it is on that at two, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, but every time I watch that film, there are still a couple of, of jump scares in it <laughs> that get me every time. And I know they're coming, but that movie is just fantastic. Yeah, the wheelchair always gets me. Yeah, and the making. I mean, if you've never sat down to watch anything about the making of Psycho, because even the Blu-ray edition that came out before this latest version, because I think the new thing about the latest version it has the uncut version on there now, um, on the 4K and the newest Blu-ray release. But both editions have a fantastic making of documentary. It, it's really fun to go back and and see how it made and what the cultural impact of that film was. Um, and then one more, since we're doing more than three, uh, just Heck yeah. evasion and body snatchers is another one I think is spectacular. Oh, that's such a good so, pick. Okay. What are yours? I- I'm curious. Well, we are, I-, I talked about one already when we were talking um, about the Argento episode and talking about foreign films. I mean, I, I always got a reference Nosferatu from 1922. Yeah. I was going to put that on my it's, list, but we had already talked about it. So I was like, eh. yeah, yeah, I- I've got to bring it up every time. Um, and I, 
I'm telling you folks, um, it's, it's just good. Check it out. The other one, which my dad introduced me to never even heard about it, um, was from 1932 starring Boris Karloff and it's called the old dark house. Super creepy. Um, just about a couple who sort of gets stranded in a storm, um, with, uh, this just real eccentric family. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And um, you get to see Boris Karloff in something other than sort of the universal monster, you know, that he's known for. Um, but speaking of universal monsters, I don't know if you have a favorite, um, you know, between Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein, you know, Invisible Man, all those. The two that I always go to is the Wolfman from 1941, Lon Chaney, um, which I think is the best Wolfman movie that they ever did. Um, Not the Benicio universal. Del Toro uh, Wolfman from, well, oh, was that 09? <laughs> maybe yeah i mean it's it's just i it's classic it's classic wolf yeah, yeah. um and, and it's a tragedy right and then um i love creature from the black lagoon in 54 those those underwater effects um that they did with the creature suit and everything are fun um i gotta throw something out there from 1951 just because this is my daughter's favorite movie of all time is the thing from another world uh the carpenter ones sci-fi horror amazing but yeah sci-fi sci horror but you got it you got to go back and and watch that one. And and I believe that's the movie that's playing in the background for Carpenter's Halloween, right? Yes. The original Halloween. That's one of the movies they're watching. Um, you talked about Psycho and the Innocents. I definitely had that on my list. I don't know if you know about this one. This is also on Criterion. Um, 1962's Carnival of Souls. Have you seen that one? No, I have not. Wait. You need to watch that one. We didn't do that for our old you show? We might have. <laughs> I have to go back and look at the notes. This is one that um, it it has a cool history. It was sort of a driving feature. Uh, another one that popped up on a lot of um, public domain. Criterion has an amazing um, set of it out there. And it is just super creepy. And if I remember correctly, um, it was filmed in my home state, Kansas. So um, the, the filmmaker before that was shooting like industrial instructional videos <laughs> and then did a horror film. Um, and then the other one that I think has to be on everybody's must watch list from 1963, the haunting that film is super scary, super effective. I mean, talk about a movie and, and we'll get to this topic when we talk about, um, night of the demon, but, um, talk about a film that doesn't show you a whole lot, but does an amazing job with its sound design and its shadows, um, and its power suggestion. Um, it, it just it puts that remake they did to shame, man. That full color version uh, with Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and what's funny is there's a couple of other films that I would put on this list too, but we're actually going to talk about them simply because of the film that we're talking about tonight. So um, this was my pick, and if you think about the the trajectory we took this month, I mean, we started with you know cheesy horror, chopping mall, <laughs> chopping mall to Night of the Demon. I did, yeah. Somehow, if, if you if you if you look at everything we covered this month, I mean, I'm pretty proud of us, Brad. We 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 tried to kind of dabble in everything. I think I think we encompassed our our personalities really well in this. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you if you want to you know do some kind of I don't know, psychology test on us. Just look at our pick of horror films that, I mean, we all enjoyed. I, I can't say that, um, well, you might feel different, but everything that we watched this month, I had a blast watching. Um, and I know how you feel about one yeah. of them. So, <laughs> 
But th this one um, has a special place for me because it's one of those films that people talk about Psycho. People talk about The Haunting. A lot of people talk about The Wolfman. And when I bring this one up, I, I just get that puzzled look. Um, and I, I think this was a first time watch for you as well, right, Brad? Yeah. You, you never no, seen this before. No, no, no. Okay. Um, well, you want to talk about when this thing came out? Because this has a little bit of an odd story on its release. Right? Yeah, and I kind of hinted at it at the beginning of the show. Um, this film in the United Kingdom uh, for its theatrical run in December of 1957 um, has a 96-minute length cut um, and is shown as a double feature with actually an American film, um, 20 Million Miles to Earth, which I'm not familiar with. Um, are you familiar with that movie at all? I don't. I, I mean, I, be I a, think I know of it, but I've never, I've never it's seen. It's gotta it. be a space movie or something, right? Or something. It's gotta be alien. I don't know. That or one of those. You, they went through the core of the Earth. Who yeah, knows? They made exactly. A bunch of those, right. So, um, so, so we have that. Um, unfortunately, in the United States, there's a movie called Night of the Iguana. <laughs> so they feel like we can't call it Night of the Demon because we already have this movie called Night of the Iguana. So let's change the name to Curse of the Demon. And let's cut out 15 minutes and release it um, in June of 1958. So it's, it's weird that, you know, they were afraid of this weird movie that probably no one has thought of since it came out. Um, and then they have this Night of the Demon, which we'll get into it is, you know, we're talking about it now. We're not talking about Night of the Iguana. So that should tell you something. Um, yeah. And it... Didn't it play with the guy? So I had also read um, there were a couple other movies that it got. Yeah. So sort of the second bill. with. So too, when it comes right? to the United States, it's a drive in only film. Um, let's see. Um, it plays with Revenge of Frankenstein. Okay. And the true story of Lynn Stewart. That's a that's a that's a crime. Film. I believe it is. Um, I, I think that's like uh, I don't know if, if it's classified as film noir, but it was, I think it was, you know, female goes undercover or something i don't know why yeah I know so that. and then and then home <laughs> home video you know it gets a million different releases some of them have the 81 minute cut then some of them have the 96 minute cut then you get a laser disc that's got the you know night of the demon then um but you and i have well you have like the huge set i have the just the the two disc you have the four disc one right or is it the no, it's still two discs. So uh, the the first version I ever owned, I think Sony had put out a DVD and it had Night of the Demon, Curse of the Demon. So it had both okay. on there. But um, the in is it uh, yeah Indicator put out a two disc special set. But what was um, first limited to like ten thousand copies included this replica quad poster of both Curse and Night of the Demon. Plus a fantastic um, book that came inside of it too, with a bunch of different articles. Yeah, mine. Yeah, mine just has the discs. So. Yeah, and I and I want to say the discs would be the same on your release and my release. Mine just has like the extra, the extra stuff okay. on it. Yeah, and and I'm telling you, folks, it, if you listen to this, you've never seen it, and you go, "Hey, I want to check it out." If you end up liking this film and it's something you want to own, you got to get this indicator. It's it's all region Blu-ray. But it comes with actually four versions of the film, right? Yeah, and I will say I had to get the indicator off of eBay, um, and I did end up paying I think like thirty dollars. Um, so it was with shipping and stuff was like forty bucks, uh, but I gladly pay that again. So um, it's worth it. Yeah, and the the only difference there's actually a there's an interesting little special feature on here. I don't know if you had a chance to watch it. It goes in the booklet. It it 
um, goes through the description of all the different cuts, but there's actually a special feature that talks about, you know, the variations. And, and the reason why there's four cuts is the 82 minute was a uh, version for the US as well as um, the UK. They're different versions because of different title cards, everything else um, that kind of take place. But in essence, when this was released in the UK, it, it was released theatrically as an 82 minute version, same thing as the US. And then for the 96 minute version, there's two versions because of different title cards and everything else. But um, technically there's four, but really it's it's really about the difference between Night of the Demon and Curse yeah. of the Demon. Uh, and we, we should say original source material on this is um, a short novella from 1911 called Casting the Runes. Um, yes, M.R. James. Did you read it at all? No, um, but what's funny is, again, since we're kind of pimping this Blu-ray out, there's two ways you can you can uh, hear about the story. So they did a radio drama of this short story that's on the Blu-ray. Oh. And then they also have somebody reading the short story, which I think is an hour long. Um, but I don't, I don't know about you. After, after watching a lot of the documentary special features about this and um, learning a little bit about M.R. James... It was definitely going to Amazon and saying, I, I need to buy like his collected short stories. Just, it, it, he sounds like a fascinating author. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think the, orig- the, the final product resembles that short story very closely. I, don't, I think it kind of ended up being um, quite different. Um, but I think there's some, some key points there. But I didn't read it. So it's just kind of from what I was looking at. So. I think you're right. I think somebody in one of the documentaries has said the 82 minute version is closest to the short story, but there, but it's still very different. Okay. Well, um, so there, we couldn't really find how much it cost versus what did it make? I, I think we can assume when you're, when you're being distributed as second bill <laughs> in a drive-in at a drive-in curse of Frankenstein and, and, uh, a story about, you know, women, undercover um busting up narcotics I, th- I think is what that movie's about um you, you probably were not a financial hit yes right for that's a, that's our assumption it's our assumption and, th- and that's why i was able to maybe justify it for a, a podcast called not a bomb is because I, I think when this thing came out it 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 just didn't do anything right well yeah i mean and most if not all people probably don't know of this movie um, I feel like I've got my ear to the ground pretty closely and I had never heard of it. Um, you okay. know, so, well, but what's fascinating is the critical response of it, right? Yeah. So this marks our very first time, Troy, of a hundred percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Holy cow. hundred percent. That means all of the critics, all, how many of them? 16, but you know, 16. Hey, yeah. That's still respectable. Yeah. Um, you know, they all kind of praise it for you know being a great thriller and having cool atmosphere and you know cool effects that we'll get into um you know a lot of people really also praise it for how intelligent and thoughtful it was which i thought that was very poignant because when i was watching this that was kind of what i thought too for being something from 1957 how kind of smart it was Um, yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to talk about that. It has a very, I don't know how, you know, you talk about scripting, right? 
I think this is textbook scary movie script. Um, and we'll go into a lot of detail, but it's intelligent. It's smart. It's got foreshadowing. Um, it's like they believe and, science more in 1957 than we do now, which is <laughs> true. You know. Yeah. Um, and I, I found this fascinating that director Martin Scorsese puts this movie on his list of 11 scariest horror films of all time. I mean, we'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> an ominous pause. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple other things before we talk about the people who made this or starred in it. Um, this, this film, I think, is, is known and loved by a lot of filmmakers. Um, it's referenced in two films. Did you see this? So in The Burbs with Tom Hanks, so that's 1989, um, when they're talking about the neighbors, and I think they're kind of um, trying to, uh, and I can't remember the, the other neighbor, Tom Hanks' neighbor, who's showing him the book. And saying, hey, you know, these these people next door to us are killers or Satanists or whatever. He's he's showing him a book. And do you know who the author is of that book? Oh, it's Julian Craswell. Carswell. Yeah. Julian Carswell, which is which is the villain in Night of the Demon. And I think they reference some of the pictures or whatever that they're showing in this yeah. film. Um, and then the other time that this film uh, kind of gets referenced, just another example, is uh, I, don't, I don't you've seen the Rocky Horror Picture yeah. Show, right? Okay, so opening sequence, science fiction, double feature song, it's referenced in there as well. So from 1975. So again, this thing is popping up. Yes, Brad. There's one more, Troy. Go for it, man. In the movie Last Action Hero, this is shown on one of the theater marquees. Get out of here. No way. Yep. yep. Really? Yeah. So we're going full circle with Last Action Hero. <laughs> I feel like the first five or six movies we ever talked about end up being the basis for everything we talk about from here yep. on out. Uh, we need, we need to do a bingo game or something <laughs> and publish that thing. Um, and then the last thing I didn't know that, uh, the, the main, um, I, I would say antagonist or, or villain in this film, which is the character of Julian Carswell is based partly on Alistair Crowley. Who Mr. Was Crowley. Sort of the Crowley, mm -hmm. the, the premier Satanist, uh, at the time. And I think they even borrow a little bit of his look, uh, from that as well. Yeah, I believe the facial hair is kind of maybe his. Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, now, uh, it's directed by Jacques Turner. Do you, are you familiar with him? A little bit. Um, I was going through his um, filmography, and Cat People is the only other film of his I've seen. Um, which, oh, okay. I mean, I think if you're going to see one, Cat People is probably the one, right? Like, and I would have added that to our black and white movie list, yeah. you know, if we were talking about that, but since it was going to come up in the filmography, I thought we'd talk about it here because he has 74 directing credits according to IMDb <sighs> and I, and trust me, I've not seen, you know, even a 25% of them. Um, but to your point, there, there were three films right out of the gate that I know him from cat people's one of them. I walked with a zombie and the leopard man, which he was all doing with producer Val Luton. Okay. Um, and, and they're all fantastic films. The other movie that I totally forgot that he directed, which I love, and, you know, talking about film noir, is Out of the Past from 1947 with Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas. Have you seen that I one? I have not. Okay. You, okay. You, homework, okay. Brad. Homework. You got, you got to go after that one. He's also, and, and again, I'm not going to go through 74. I was just trying to pick out the ones that I thought were super interesting or things that might be in our, our wheelhouse or 
Um, I had a question of whether or not you saw. So another one, which is sort of film noir, or a couple more, Berlin Express in 1948 and Nightfall in 1956. Have you caught either no. of those? It's interesting because I'll, I'll have a few questions for you when we talk about Night of the Demon in relation to film noir. But it makes total sense to me that this guy would work with Val Luton. Um, you know, have that fantastic. I mean, Cat People. If you haven't seen it, like you said, if if you're if you're going to check out any other film of his, actually, I'd recommend to Cat People and Out of the Past. Okay. Um, but this guy has such a um, I don't know, a unique vision when it comes to tension um, and scares and thrills. And I, I think between the one we're going to talk about tonight and those other two, I mean, it lays it all out. I, and then even I, after- I will say one of my favorite things about the cat, about cat people is that poster, the poster, the film poster is so good. Like these films, I mean, is it bad to talk about movie posters from the 1950s and say they're like iconic? Cause I mean, they are, no, they're they just are. I mean, so beautiful. Look, go back. Yeah, go look at the film posters for I Walk oh, sorry. With a Zombie. Oh, sorry. Cat People's from 42. Sorry. I said 50. Yeah. But, yeah. but look at those Val Luton posters. Um, I mean, I am... <laughs> okay, tangent. The posters today just suck because it's all, you know, here's who's starring in it, a couple of face shots. There's no creativity to it. But you look at the posters back from Cat People, I Walked With a Zombie, any, you know, The Haunting, stuff like that. I mean, they're iconic. They're memorable. I couldn't even tell you what some of the last movie posters were that I that I really liked. Um, that looked like a piece of art. Well, me. I mean, you know, Indiana Jones, uh, Back to the Future. You know, Drew Struzan is probably the last one that we we, oh, knew, yeah, we know point. of, and that's that's it. I mean, that's yeah. And I feel like companies like Mondo, who are going out and taking like um, <laughs> recent films and doing their own film prints and film posters. Are you know adding more creativity and originality than the marketing departments of these studios? Yeah. But I'm um, hey, you're you're spot on. You look at that Cat People poster from the '40s and um, any of those Val Luton ones. They're they're so much fun to look at. Um, and then a couple of films that I noticed that he did after Night of the Demons in '57. He worked with Dana Andrews again on The Fear Makers in '58 and Comedy of Terrors with Vincent Price in '63. So um, interesting filmography. Now this I did not know. The screenplay. So you said it was based on a story by M.R. James, um, which is called Casting the Ruins. But there are two um, names that are associated with the screenplay. The first is Hal E. Chester, and we'll get to him in a minute. He's also served as executive producer on the film. So um, he is the one that added some things to the screenplay in the film that we'll talk about that added some controversy at the time. Um, but the main man who is attributed with um, converting the short story uh, to the screenplay is Charles Bennett. Do you know what films Charles Bennett has written? Uh, no. Why don't you go ahead and tell me? Well, it's funny that we were just talking about Alfred Hitchcock um, towards the beginning and talking about Psycho. But I didn't know this. Charles Bennett had wrote um, a bunch of different screenplays for Hitchcock in the beginning. So he did The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1934. Oh, okay. He did 39 Steps in 1935. He did Secret Agent in 1936, Sabotage in 36, and Foreign Correspondent in 1940. So he wrote all of those screenplays for Alfred Hitchcock. And then um, does a spooky movie um, directed by Jacques Turner. Uh, I, I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he gets to work and with... It, well, yeah, and it kind of makes sense when we talk about like this film and the screenplay. I think you talked about it a little bit, how intelligent it is. It, it would make total sense that that kind of screenwriter is going to bring that type of prose um, to this work. So the cast, 
Dana Andrews as as our hero, John Holden. Um, Peggy Cummins as Joanna Harrington. Um, Niall McGinnis, Dr. Julian Carswell, right? So our villain here. Athene Saylor as Mrs. Carswell. So we'll talk about those two. Um, I think it's a unique relationship. So um, Mrs. Carswell is not the wife, it's the mother. So <laughs> yes. our, our evil man here, our, our villain lives with his mom. <laughs> And um, lastly is Maurice Denham with uh, Professor Henry Harrington. I'm not uh, really familiar with a lot of these names, um, to be quite honest. I'm sure somebody who specializes in, in films from the 40s, 50s, et cetera, could, could go through. Because even when I was going through the IMDb, I'm like, yeah, I've seen some of these. Yeah, but... I wasn't familiar with a lot. <clears throat> and it's weird because especially um, uh, Niall McGinnis, I mean, He's so good in this film. I just would have assumed he would have popped up in a ton of other like iconic films. But um, I don't know. You, you want to get into this thing? Because we're not only going to talk about this film, but a little bit later, we're going to talk about another film that's very similar to this film. Um, and I'm really curious because, well, let's just put it out there. Um, Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell came to mind, right? Yes. Definitely. Um, and when we talk about this thing, we're going to dovetail into a discussion of that movie because I have some questions for you, Brad. But um, that's, you know, if you were debating on whether or not to hang out and listen to the rest of this, there you go. There's, there's a little teaser. We're going to talk about it. Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell too. But I'm going to start with you, Brad. Um, I chose this one, sprung it on you. I didn't know it was a first time watch for you. So I'm, I'm just curious, right, right out of the gate, uh, what do you think? I... Really enjoyed this movie quite a bit. Um, I don't want to go out and say, hey, I love this movie, but I might really love this movie a lot. Um, it was everything I was looking for, like a 1950s black and white horror film. Um, great effects. Um, the smoke effect in this movie I is something I'd never seen in a movie before. Um, I've seen thousands of movies and something from 1957 like shocked me with how they did stuff. Um, I thought it that was that sequence of the smoke effects with the hooves in the ground. Yes. Kind of comes place mid film is amazing. Yeah. I, I, again, you know, that's stuff that I, you know, you don't see now. And, um, I thought it was well acted. Um, Peggy Cummings, I thought was the standout for me. I think she was really, really good. Um, obviously Niall McGinnis is an evil person and it, it's, it's really cool to kind of have him, um, play, being played really well. Um, and you know, the lead guy is a little bit of, um, I don't know. I wasn't as impressed with him, but, um, overall I really love this movie. Um, it had me hooked that first scene. Um, I wish they would have made one kind of choice that they didn't make. Now I know we'll probably get into this, but let's just go ahead and say it. Now there's a group in this movie that did not want to show the monster at all. And there's a Correct. separate group that said, no, we need to show it. I myself kind of fall in the middle where I think the movie might've been better if they waited to show the monsters at the very end. And they just had the smoke at the beginning and then the guy dies. And then we wait Let's to get the in. very end to show the monster. So that's, that's where I fall, but whatever. But no, that's that's the big debate. Um, Jacques Turner and Charles Bennett, so Turner director, Bennett, one of the screenwriters, they say they never intended um, to show the monster at all. 
so it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to show up. Now, if you watch um, a lot of the special features, and it's really interesting, they go through like this whole history of submitting the screenplay to the board to get a rating, etc. There's all these notes about um, the intent of showing the monster. I don't know, to your point, if it was going to come at the end, or um, it, it only shows up in two places, in the beginning in the end, and in yeah. the end. Um, and the way the story goes is how Chester added the monster in post-production um, to the beginning and the end sequences. Um, and that was, according to the director and the other screenwriter, not what they intended. But historians who looked at this say, hey, if you, you really look at the evidence, they had always intended to have the monster. And I think the monster at one point, um, they were looking to Ray Har Harryhausen um, oh. to do it, but he was contracted to do something yeah, else. But It's um, a cool creature design, too. Um, do you know how they do that effect, the uh, the monster in the beginning? So that's all projection. No. So what it is is they have the actor literally acting in front of a projection screen, and that monster is being projected onto the screen. So it makes, as it's coming, yeah, in. yeah. Oh, so that's cool. They do that in like he arrives at the airport. Um, some of those scenes are projections. So it's okay. it's yeah. It's, Where they have a set in the front, yeah, and it's, then it's pseudo like green okay. screen. Think of it like that. They didn't have a green screen it, back then because they couldn't you know, use a computer to go in and do it. So they just projected it and they acted in front of it. So, um, it, it looked better at night than it did. At yeah. Day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like when the guys in the car at the very beginning, you can always see that really hard outline from, yes. so, but again, it's 1957. I think some of that stuff looks better than green screen crap. Now, um, you know, <laughs> I agree. think of like Dawn of justice and like how you can automatically tell that like it's all green screen. Here it's like, oh, it actually looks really good. And, you know, it kind of tickles that nostalgia too because that's just how they made movies back then. So so you, you're you in the camp that it's not that they shouldn't have shown the monster, that maybe it should only be... It should have been the climax. The um, they should have, you know, think of it as Bruce the shark in Jaws. Make the audience wait as long as possible. Because um, then you even build up in the forest, you have, you know, the smoke comes, but you only see the footprints. And then at the very end, just think about how affecting that would have been at the very end of the movie. Then the monster comes and it's just like, boom. And then that's kind of what you're left with. I, I think, I don't know. I, I think I would kind of agree. So if you're talking about the sequence of effects and the way the story goes is once somebody curses you, um, and you go through this transition. How many days you get, Troy? Three. It's important. Right? Yeah. So it, it starts to sound, um, it, you know, not necessarily ghostly images on day one. Um, then you get to day two, and you start to see uh, silhouettes, the fireball, the smoke, etc. And then day three, you know, the thing shows up. They do that throughout the rest of the film. So you get your first victim, right? And full on, you skip day one and two, you go to three, and bam, first 10 minutes, monster shows up, and this guy supposedly backs into an um, electrical pole. Everybody says he dies from electrocution, but his body's all mangled. Um, and, and what's funny is this isn't a graphic film. I, well, maybe. At the end, I think it gets a little... Um, it gets kind of he's crazy, a crispy but, critter at the end there. Yes, but what's what's interesting is the rest of the film follows exactly what you're talking about, which is we go through the sounds, we go through you know 
um, some of the the noises, then you start getting you know a fantastic sequence outside of um, Carswell's home, where the fireball or the smoke's coming, and then hooves are coming uh, into the ground, um, but you don't see what's making those hoof marks. It's really creepy and effective. And then you get to the train station, where it uh, it shows up again, um, and you know. Spoiler alert, it, it goes after the person who now has the curse. I kind of agree with you, but at the same time, knowing what it is and, and seeing what's going to happen up front, and then once the curse, um, I guess, gets passed on to Dana Andrews, and you spend the rest of the film with Dana Andrews, right? And he doesn't believe it, but you've seen it as a viewer, um, or you think it's real because keep in mind, even the way they shot it, they're trying to, um, show it through that doctor's perspective. So you don't know if it's him imagining it or if it's really there, but for the most part, I mean, it's, I think the way they, yeah, I, it, I never assumed that it wasn't there. I always assumed that it was real. Yeah. I mean the, the Henry Harrington, I think is the first victim, um, who bites it in the beginning. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I kind of I kind of like how they did it because now that you see the threat and you know it's coming for him, you know how much danger he's yeah, in. Yeah, and again, the effect is amazing. So like getting to see it twice instead of once is a benefit. Like I'm not complaining that I got to see the monster. I just think you know, if I'm going to critique this movie, that's the only thing I would would probably say is maybe showing the monster once would have benefited better than twice, but you know, you can make the argument that no, it's more affecting because now we know what kind of danger our character's in. So um, I would not disagree with that. So there's another monster in this film, Carswell. What do you, what do you think of him? You, you said that um, uh, Peggy Cummins was the, uh, yeah, Peggy Cummins was like the standout. I, I agree. She's fantastic. We'll talk about um, Dana Andrews here, here in a minute, but I want to talk about Neil McGinnis. I mean, I think he is just as effective as Peggy. As a matter of fact, when he's on screen um, and there is one particular exchange that I think is a standout of the film, and it's when um, Dana Andrews, Peggy Cummings kind of confront him for the first time as a couple and they show up to his estate. Oh, when he's dressed like a clown? Oh, God, that's pure evil. Well, you don't like clowns, so there. (laughs) Dr. Bobo the Magnificent. Um so, you know, he's a look, he dress up like a clown, you know, he's yeah. a villain. So he's evil. So right there. Okay. But, um, his, well, I mean, the first time you meet this guy, he's playing cards with his mom. And then when he is, uh, being introduced to Peggy Cummins and, and they show up, he's Bobo, the magnificent clown or whatever, having a kid's party. And then they, they do this walk, um, where, you know, they're talking and you get this, exchange of ideas right so dana andrews doesn't believe it he's there to debunk um really carswell and his whole cult and everything and carswell is you know trying to question him and say you know why don't you believe it what's so what's so different about this twilight time that kind of takes place between reality and and fantasy etc but that whole sequence is just fantastic and he's so evil but yet he's trying to be nice and his mom's in the background serving ice cream. Yeah. And kids. those two damn kids jump out and I'm like, God, <laughs> that got me. I'm like, come on, come on. 
Yeah, well, and and you know the other thing is he he, well, he shows his powers, right? Yeah. Um, at the risk of harming all those children on top of it, so well, someone else's case, Troy. I guess I I don't know I, I really like him as a character because throughout the entire thing, he is menacing, um, but at the same time he's just got these odd little characteristics with his mother. Um, and even towards the end when they kind of figure out that he is just as afraid of the thing that he has conjured up than anybody else. I mean, that's a nuanced performance. I think yeah, he never goes full psycho. He never goes full crazy. No, he doesn't. Um, there's, there is a little bit of a charm to him. Yeah. And, and I think that helps because he's grounded in reality and not, he's just not a crazy person. Like he, he knows what he's unleashed and is afraid of it. And rightfully so. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know if you can have a monster and then have another human that is a monster and it work. You know, you kind of have to, you can't have two monsters in a film that has five or six people in it. You know, like it's just too much. No, I agree. And you bring up the jump scares. So there's actually uh, quite a few jump scares in this film. Um, what I find interesting is the jump scares really come out of nowhere and I don't know about you, like, I I can tell. So we just talked about Event Horizon last week, and it, it had its fair share of jump scares. Most of them didn't work, in, in my opinion. Yeah, we talked um, that, you know, you there's times when jump scares just are there because you don't believe your film is tense enough or scary enough, and your audience is, in, is watching a horror movie, and they're expecting at some point in time, every few minutes, we need to be scared, and... If you don't believe in your film enough, sometimes you should rely on the cheap jump scares. Now, there's yeah. also not no, cheap you're right. jump scares, but most of the time they're cheap. Well, and it, it's all about where is the audience attention, right? So if you're doing a jump scare, I think the the real crucial effective ones, it's almost like a sleight of hand trick. So your attention is focused over here and you're not prepared for it. So you don't hear the swelling of music. It's an everyday affair or you're, you're in a tense moment and your vision or your attention is focused on something. And then when the jump scare happens, it comes from a place that's just totally unexpected. Yeah. That that's the, it's the opposite of, Hey, I'm going to open up this door, this or cupboard or something like that. And when I close it, there's going to be someone standing behind me. Like that's yeah. Flip a light switch. Somebody's there. Open the door. Somebody's there. Close the door. It's behind you. I mean, what other traditional jump scares are uh, there? Cats. I mean, just period. Cats. <laughs> yep. Throw throw an animal at somebody's yeah. face, um, swelling in the music, yeah. right? Loud noises, yeah. all this other stuff. Really cheap junk. This one doesn't go for that. You mentioned the one. You've got two intellectuals, right? They're walking along. They're having this debate, uh, you know, between myth, mysticism, reality, science, everything else. And there's a fantastic dialogue exchange going on too. And then out of nowhere, these two kids show up that look like um, the kids from Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> oh, yeah, guys. yeah. Um, and it gets me every time because you're you're so engaged in this dialogue and your focus and attention is on these two and their word exchanges. And these two little kids come around to play this prank, this Halloween prank. I jump yeah, but in that... You could see that happening. Like there's a million kids around and of course two kids would try to scare two adults talking like that would be something that would happen. Yeah, absolutely. The The other one that I thought in, so there's that one. And the other one that gets me all the time is 
um, we've we've got Holden who decides, hey, he's he's going to go look at this book. So Carswell has this book. Um, nobody can translate it. Uh, so you know, Peggy comes and says, well, let's break into the house. So um, Holden's like, nope, I'm going to go break into the house. And, and I'll say this: the special effects are fantastic. There is one sequence in here that's not so fantastic, but breaks into the house. And you're going through this tracking shot, and he's creeping into the house. He stumbles into something, goes down the stairs. He's investigating, and all of a sudden, this you see what he's doing in the background, and you've got this fantastic sort of wide shot of the stairs. And all of a sudden, this hand comes into the foreground and grabs the railing, and that one gets me too. Yeah. Um, and then the other one I really like is um the uh the it's it's the hip they're hypnotizing rand hobart so there's a whole sequence there and as they're trying to bring him out of a catatonic state um it's just dead quiet right so they're there's an auditorium they're watching they give the guy the shot and they're they're explaining here's what we're doing he's and coming out of catatonic state catatonic state it's totally quiet and the next thing you know this guy just snaps out of it and just starts screaming it's another effective jump scare where you know something's going to happen. You don't know exactly. You don't expect that reaction. Um, but again, it's a. I, I would put this as a master class of how to do jump scares correctly. Oh, agreed. And yeah, none of them feel cheap. Um, they only kind of heighten the tension that's already kind of building. Because I mean, I, I, I guess with films with like a deadline, always kind of have that natural tension because you know you're always kind of going up against this ending that is going to happen regardless of, of if the, if the protagonist can figure something out, if not, you know, into that three days or 72 hours or whatever, something is going to happen. Um, so that always kind of gives you this finite number of, of time before that happens. Um, so it's always kind of just natural tension that way. It is, and it, and it comes from places that aren't necessarily this this curse or this demon that's supposed to show up. Um, like you said, every day that goes by, you're seeing a little bit more of what's going to happen to him or what's going to attack him. And these jump scares come from elements that aren't associated with it. But on top of those jump scares, you get this story and the sense of dread, um, and especially the farm sequence. So the, the big difference between the 96-minute cut and the 82 minute cut really comes from the Hobart farm sequence. So when they're trying to figure out that, you know, here's an individual who went insane, apparently was cursed or left the cult, um, survived the curse, but has just gone, you know, bonkers and he's locked up and he's being accused of murder. They tried to go to his family farm um, to get a release, you know, so that they can do this uh, hypnosis sequencing, you know, for the, the symposium that he's doing to, to crack down on Carswell and, and uh, the Colt. That whole farm sequence, it's interesting. They start laying out some of the rules at that point of how this curse works, and you get an introduction to it, and then it really formulates with that whole sequence of um, hypnotizing Hobart, and then he explains what happened to yep. him. So I think the reason why they cut that out was in the 82-minute version, it becomes a little bit more of a mystery um, like how you're going to solve it. Whereas in the full version, they are laying out the pieces as you go in each sequence. Oh, about like giving the, the relic to somebody else or whatever before. And they have to accept it. Is that kind of the, 
Yeah, because they they if you if you think about it, and I don't know if you watched the eighty two minute version. I did not. I, I watched both of them this week. Yeah. So the biggest thing is that whole um, idea of you have to give the relic um, or the piece of paper to somebody unknowingly so that they own it. In the eighty two minute version, you don't know that rule up until the end when um, Hobart kind of comes out of that catatonic state and explains what happened to him. But at the farm sequence, when he pulls out um, the piece of paper uh, that he's having them sign or putting it away, all of a sudden they see that and the whole family like freaks out and says, oh, you've been marked. Um, and you start to understand what that means and what possibly may have happened and this whole you got to pass it on. Um, so the rules start to show themselves rather than it just being a big reveal during the last. Portion yeah, I don't know if I because I like that farm sequence a lot. Um, it's, eerie. it's really it's eerie really and it's how, how everybody is just treating him. And yeah, because it's like, they're all on one side and he's standing on another and they're all just kind of staring at him and they're, you know, they're occultists. So you're like, what's going to happen here is, is he even going to get out of this alive? Um, I like that a lot. I, I knowing that that part is kind of taken out kind of makes me upset a little bit. Well, yeah. And I, I feel like that. So you, when you talk about Dana Andrews as an actor, I really like that sequence because um, I really feel like that's when he's starting to change his opinion a little bit. Like for the, most of the movie, even the stuff he's seeing and the stuff he's going through, he it, he really always shrugs it off and goes, I'm buying into the hype. And he brings up the voodoo priest, right? So he says, oh, when a voodoo priest puts a curse on there, he's they're tearing you know pages out of the calendar. They're doing all of these things to make you think this is going to happen so you believe it. And so as these events occur, he goes, yeah, I've studied this and this is normally what happens to somebody who's been cursed. But as long as you don't believe in it, you're safe. That farm sequence and his visit to Stonehenge and everything else, I think Andrews does a fantastic job of really just saying, okay, there's something going on here. And and he doesn't have the the science or the logic. To yeah, he's a man away. of science. So you would naturally think he is going to try to science his way out of everything going on. Um, until he can't. And then when pretty much the evidence shows that, no, this is going to happen. He no longer is like, no, there's still something going on. Like, or I can fix this. He's like, no, okay. I know the rules. I got to do this now, or I am going to die. This isn't, this is a real like curse. It's not, you know, anything else. Um, and I like that. I like, you know, you kind of hate it when you're the person that you're kind of going along with is a denier the whole time. And you're just like, no, but, but he's not a, he's not a jerk about, it. I no, mean, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like though, you have these characters in other movies where they deny it the whole time and then they die. And you're like, well, it was there. You, you had all the evidence, but you know, you kind of deserve to die. This guy, you're like, I don't want him to die. Um, so I want him to kind of figure out what he needs to do to, to not get killed after the third day. So, yeah, and I mean, if if you're coming into this fresh, I don't know how many times I've watched this thing. I think you're coming into it fresh and the way Andrews takes that Holden character and pulls him along, right? Logic, refute. Um, he even has a great line, you know, as a scientist, I ask for it and then once I see it, I, I check it twice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and his explanations of why things exist or don't happen or other cultures and other myths and um, just really... I don't know. I it doesn't come off as standoffish. 
I'd say in the 82 minute cut, because they're losing some sequences, he, he feels like a different character than the 96 minute, still a good guy. Um, but I don't know the 96 minute, I, I believe him. And you'd almost think in the middle of the film, he's like, well, maybe this guy's right. Maybe, maybe this is just in somebody's head. Maybe that first sequence really didn't happen. Um, but then that farm sequence, he starts to get pulled over into this. Yeah, I, I could be dealing with something that's way out of my league here. And he sells it. Yeah. If, you know, it, uh, I think the performances, again, are, are all spectacular across the board. Yeah, and speaking of the the curse, I mean, we're we're talking about special effects with the whole demon sequence and stuff like that. I love the little piece of paper, um, like it has its a life of its yeah. own kind of thing, Flying and it's always air. trying to escape. Yeah, it's always trying to escape, um, or you know, get burned or something of that nature. And the way they do it, it it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, actually, so just so everyone knows, you did say the word Stonehenge. Stonehenge is in this movie. It's it's a little bit weird, but yes. Stonehenge is in this movie. So, well, it opens with Stonehenge, yeah, right? Yeah. And goes through that whole yeah. thing. Um, the script. I, I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, you you said it was very intelligent, right? And how it presents itself. I mean, did I guess my question for you is: Did you at any point in this film think that they were over explaining? So you know, in horror films or science fiction films, you get this whole explanation of like what the heck's going on. And I don't know, I don't know how about you, but there's some of these movies when it comes to that part, it just grinds to a halt. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes the mystery, you, you really don't want, I mean, who cares how the force works? I don't, I don't care That's about the or anything. It's in your blood. Yeah, Troy. I, I just, no, no, I don't want your science. No, it's <laughs> just what's the mystery. You know, no, it's midichlorians. It's in our blood, Troy. Come on. I Scientology said it wasn't, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, what it, do you think this film over explains or do you, do you like the handling of it? Honestly, it, I hope it doesn't because there are some parts that I missed. So I was like, I hope this isn't too explainy because if not, I'm dumb because I missed some few parts, um, nothing big, but I, I think it does a pretty good, pretty good job of just kind of giving you what you need, but it never has that moment where two characters are talking and, you know, the grand plot is, is, you know, given or, you know, you never really know why the original guy was cursed in the first play. You know, it's just, well, I guess he, cause he left the cult, but you know, it's never like this huge explanation. Um, I'm like you, I hate that stuff. Um, it really bothers me. Um, you know, and this is a simple sort of movie. Like you get cursed, you got three days and the monster comes and you're going to die. It's, you don't really need to know, a whole lot more than that. So if you're wasting time explaining anything more than that, like you're going to lose my interest because it's not that hard of a concept. No, it isn't. And I, I really like that. I don't know when I found out that the guy who wrote this ends up doing those early Hitchcock films, like 39 steps, stuff like that. It totally made sense because the progression of the mystery and the progression of the story feels like a good quality thriller, almost Hitchcockian, right? To where you're presented with this death that occurs, this possible murder at the beginning. Um, you have this very logical scientist come in in the beginning who is, his whole purpose there is to debunk Carswell and, and his cult. And he spends the entire film just kind of going through and trying to explain things away and use science um, to debunk everything 
but then he slowly pulled into this mystery and by the end of it he's like oh crap that this stuff's real right I think it's it's so well done and there's so much foreshadowing. So if you if you go back and watch this again after a recent view, um, there were so many little great lines. I mean, if we're talking about the script, you know, Carswell calls in the beginning and then, you know, Holden picks up the phone and is like, Oh, speak of the devil. I mean, it's little stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. Um, at the kids' party when they when they show up, right? And so they get out of the car and they're walking around the corner and they're saying, Wow, it sounds like a human sacrifice. Um, so they're, they're making all these little self-referential oh, jokes okay. yeah. that are in Carswell when, when they're having that great dialogue and exchange when they're walking along and, um, he goes, Oh, you might not know this board game, right? Um, snakes and ladders, uh, you know, it's an English game and he makes this comment of, I've always preferred sliding down snakes rather than climbing up ladders. Um, it's those little details within the screenplay that, uh, I think provide this fantastic, you know, pulling the curtains back a little bit and you're seeing these people through their actions or little quips. Um, That other line that I really like when they're having drinks and um, (laughs) the one guy holds the glass and and he's like, well, the devil has something here, you know, most pleasant when he's referring to his drink. And then the other uh, scientist says he's at his most dangerous when he's pleasant, which is exactly how Carswell acts throughout the entire film. He's super pleasant super trying to be charming. Yeah, it's like, hey, you want to borrow but, my book? Just come on over to my house. Borrow my book. Yeah, exactly. You want some ice cream? My mom makes the greatest, the best ice cream. Homemade ever. ice cream is um, awesome, by the way. It is, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, but that screenplay is showing its hands through these little bit of exchanges. And uh, that that's why I think this is so much fun rewatching again is because once you get through it and can – I don't know, visually take in everything that's going on, get the story down, et cetera, and then go back and listen to these exchanges. And if you're really paying attention, it's laying out everything that's going to happen through the film just right in the beginning of the of, of what's going on. Oh, wow. On. Okay. I'll have to go back and watch again. And the, they drink a lot of this movie. I love it. Every scene is like, hey, do you need a drink? Like, <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, and even him is like, you want a drink? She's like, nope. It's like, well, I'm yep. having one. <laughs> Sucks so. for you, bro, but I'm having one. I might have two. Yeah, no, it's, um, I just, I am so in love with this film. I mean, I, I'm glad you like it, but it seems like the more I watch this, the more I'm I'm picking something out of it. Um, and I, I can see why so many people, why it has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, because it's an effective, scary, spooky film that has a great mystery, fantastic dialogue. The, the characters are... Um, so involving. There's two sequences I do have a question for you at. So the special effects are fantastic until he breaks into the house, and um, oh, he fights the stuffed animal. You know, he fights the stuffed leopard. Yeah. Um, the kitty cat goes leopard. So that that's a little distracting. Um, the other, <laughs> the other sequence I have a question for you, and I don't know if you found this effective or just kind of goofy. Was was the seance? Oh, when they hypnotize the guy. No, no, no. Oh. When the mother says, oh, I need to help you out, so I'm going to bring this medium over, and oh, we're going to sit yes. down, and he goes through all the different voices, and then finally comes to um, uh, her uncle, uh, Henry Harrington, starts talking to him through the medium, um, is telling him what's going on. Uh, what did you think of that? Yeah, scene? it's a little cheesy, um, which when we talk about Drag Me to Hell, we can, uh, we'll talk about that even more. So, um, Yeah, I, I think it's fun. It's it's that light comedic touch, and I I think it comes at the right point for um, 
Holden's character, I feel like he's just almost there and he feels like something's going on. Then he goes to that seance and then when he experiences this, he's like, oh yeah, I'm coming back to my senses. This is all baloney. Like that guy's just putting on an act and he's trying to trick us and the mom cares more about her son than us. (laughs) Brings him back to reality. But I feel like it's perfectly placed in a scripting for that type of character to go, if I'm going to go through this, it's going to ground me into my beliefs again and go, yeah, this is all, you know, phony. What do you think about the uh, white guy playing the uh, Indian guy? Mr. Ku- Professor Kumar. <laughs> I, I say that's 1950s Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. A little brown face <laughs> never hurt anybody, I guess. Ugh. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you got to understand no, what I know, was going I on know. back then. So. I know, but it's like now you're just like, oh, man, you'd be canceled now, sir. Um, <clears throat> so you just, you just brought it up. I've, I've been dying to talk about it. So I saw this film way before I ever saw Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. And Drag Me to Hell was, um, crap, was that 2009? 2009. Yeah, it was 2009. Yep. Now, for you, you saw Drag Me to Hell first. Yes. And then this one. Yes. Um, how much of an influence is this film on Sam Raimi's film? Now, oh, it's huge. Sam Raimi, <laughs> yeah, Sam Sam Raimi, and was it his? Uh, is it Ivan Raimi? His, his brother, brother, yes, Ivan wrote the screenplay for Drag Me to Hell. Um, and in terms of the credits, those are the only two credits that are there. So they wrote. The they could not get the rights them. to Curse of the Demon, I believe. Right, like that's the story. Is it? I, think I, so. I don't know. I was I was always curious about this one. Um, for for full disclosure, when we were trying to put a list together of movies that we we really liked and we thought were underappreciated, Drag Me to Hell was on the the, the list until we went and looked up its box office and its yeah. ratings. Like, and it was a huge. We success. always had like this. We always wanted to have like this third bucket of films that we thought people didn't talk about enough, but. You know, I don't like having stuff where it's like, well, you know, it's always easier to have a film that's like, oh, it's critics didn't like it, so it's a bomb, or it didn't make money, so it's a bomb. Having that third bucket is like, ah, that's kind of a cheap way to do it. So we we try not to reach into that bucket very often. And Drag Me to Hell was like this huge success. Actually, was critically, critically did yeah. Real I mean, well. it's I feel like Raimi kind of gets a, a big pass with a lot of people, but. I like Drag Me to Hell. I'm not saying that, you know, it's a bad movie or anything like that. But, like, you're you're right. I watched Drag Me to Hell first. Um, you know, had zero idea. I mean, you had told me that, hey, Night of the Demon is is a pretty big influence on this movie. And then you, I went and watched Night of the Demon. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, there's so many things that are that are so close. You know, you have the three days. Even, like, the climax location. That both films train station is in a train station. So when it got, <laughs> yeah. so when uh night of the demon got to the train station, I was like, Oh, this is the end of the movie. Cause this is how Jack Miel ended. This is going to where it ends. And of course it does. Like it's, you know, so without the credit stuff, it really bothers me a little bit because they borrow a lot from this movie and to not say anything or to credit anyone is kind of crappy. I, I agree. I it makes do. me so, not like the movie as much, to be honest with you. I was going to ask you that. So what's funny is um, we both kind of agreed that we would go back and watch Drag Me to Hell this week if we had the time. 
So I watched, you know, Curse, Night, and then Drag Me to Hell. Um, and when I was looking at similarities, it's like, okay, both movies start with a victim of the curse and their death. Both movies start that way. Um, each movie has a cursed object. One is a button, one is a piece of paper. But what's funny is how the piece of paper floats in Night of the Demon, they do that same effect with the gypsy scarf, yeah. right? Um, and the rules are the same on not only how to get the curse, but how to pass it on. Yeah. So the, the whole plot and the rules are the same. Then you got a couple. So both movies have a couple. One is a skeptic and one is a believer. And sure enough, the guy is the skeptic in both yep. films and the girl is the believer in both films. But, you know, one in Drag Me to Hell, the girl's cursed and Night of the Demon, the guy's cursed. Both movies have the seance scene. Um, and I think both movies use that seance scene for comedic effect. Yes. Yes, um, for sure. Yeah, and each film ends with the demon attacking a major character at a train station. So when you look at that, and to me it's kind of like, okay, if you were struggling to get the rights um, for the film, right? Or if you were struggling to get the rights for the short story, because they, they don't even credit the short story, um, you know, Casting the Ruins that this is based off of. It, it does kind of bother me a little bit to kind of go... Ooh, I, I don't know. Drag Me to Hell, I still think, is a good film. It's fun. It is a modern-day take on Night of the Demon. Um, I'll go ahead and put it out there. I like Night of the Demon. I don't want to say more. For a Halloween film, I like Night of the Demon. For a fun horror film, I like Drag Me to Hell. Does that yeah. make sense? There is uh, one aspect of Drag Me to Hell that just gets under my skin so much. Um, and I don't know why, because you have a, like a Romani woman that puts a curse on another person and like, she's always like throwing up in this poor girl's <laughs> mouth or something's happening, yeah. but it's like the whole promotion thing. Troy, you've probably been promoted in your life, right? Uh, yeah. One, once or twice. Yeah. How did you get that promotion? Um, did you interview for it? Did you apply for I it? Did. Did your boss did. come out of the, his office one day and say, "Hey, Troy, it's going to be between you. This promotion is going to be between you and Stu. So duke it out." Never. never nope. Never. Never got that. Done. How can nope. they not get that right? Like, how can you not get that part right? <laughs> like, it's so easy. Um, you know, I so and it's also this film takes me back because I started working in a financial institution in 2008, which was a great time to work in banking to be honest with you. Um, and this kind of plays into that whole, um, you know, recession time because financial crisis the lady and... can't, needs an extension on her mortgage. Um, and they don't, and that's kind of the catalyst for cursing her. Um, so no, it was kind of this thing. It was like, Oh, Hey, remember when we thought the world was going to end because, you know, banks were too big to fail and we were going to bail them out and all this stuff is those, qu those are quaint now. <laughs> Who, who was the guy that was she Was it Chip? What, what was his name? Stu. I don't know. I I mean, I, I don't think I've ever worked with a Stu. Maybe Stu like qualities, but not flat out the way that this guy is from a caricature. I don't know. I'm with you. I, I don't know if it's because, I mean, I work in, in uh, a business that's similar to that as well, right? Financial services. And when you see films where characters work in that same thing, and like you said, it's, well, here's a promotion and here's what's going on. Or, hey, we're going to have a, a movie that takes this character and this is their job and it's in 2009. And you go, um, oh, 
woman walks in and wants a pass on her mortgage payment and this is how they handle it you're like oh it doesn't work that yeah, way yeah and <laughs> it takes you out a little well, bit well yeah and you know banks don't want to be they don't want to own real estate because it's terrible so they're no. always going to try yep. I, it just bothers me because i you know at this point in time i was doing credit analysis so like that was part of my job is like figuring out if people were worthy of getting a line of credit and so, you know, and it, you know what, it's, it's, it's okay. I I'll say the difference between this, like drag me to hell and, um, night of the demon, both movies. And I don't know what it is. I mean, I think we talked about this before. There's always something that pops up. You know, we were talking about, um, was it Ip Man two and the boxer comes out and you just lost it because of how they do the boxing yeah. scenes. There's, there's always something that can get away of your enjoyment of a film in terms of how it takes a particular, uh, subject and doesn't treat it with realism. However, I think good scripting, um, the way the character sells it, et cetera, can get you over that. And you may work in that industry. Heck, you may have worked um, and had that same kind of situation, and you you know, you know, know it doesn't go down that way. But I, I feel like the stuff that happens in Night of the Demon, the scripting and the performances sell it so much better than um, Alison Lohman in, in uh, Drag Me to Hell, which is, you know, really she's just going for the female Bruce Campbell stuff. Yeah. I mean, she's getting beat up. Yeah, all, yeah, all that stuff is straight up ash, you know. Um, yeah, and, and again, I'm, I don't want to dump on Drag Me to Hell. I just think that every time I see Night of the Demon, I do lose a little bit more respect for that Exactly. I, I still think it's fun. I, I think, I think you I, hit it on the head, like, my respect for that movie because I watched drag me hell on Monday and was like, Oh yeah, I really enjoy this movie. It's fun and all this stuff. And then by the end of the week, I was like, man, I don't respect that movie hardly at all anymore. It's just, yeah. It's just, when you see Sam Raimi in person, you want to like kick him in the shin and go, go go give those people money. (laughs) Just give them credit. Just give them credit. Like you made a lot, you made way more money on your theatrical release and night of the demon. Go, go share some of that. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a Tarantino fan. I have no reason to like stealing stuff is, you know, should be, you know, <laughs> there you go, Troy. I said it. Uh, thank you. I'm glad after all these years, you finally admit that. Um, no, but I, I just, I, again, if we're talking about, I want to get into a spooky Halloween mood, night of the demon goes yeah. in. If I kind of want a um, Tucker and Dale, you know, sort of, funny scary movie i I don't drive me to hell just is it that scary no it's well there's no no well i I think uh, are there any scary parts it's more just like silly sort of stuff it's more akin to like ghostbusters than like exorcist you know what i'm saying like it's yeah yeah uh i guess there are a couple sequences like i I enjoy the parking garage sequence. Yeah. Although it gets into something that's more comedy and very Sam Raimi. Yeah, it goes on a little too long. Violence and, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, no, I, you're right. You're right. I'll, I'll say this, and this is one of the things I forgot um, in listening to the two scores. And I can't remember. Did Elfman do Drag Me to Hell? Ooh. I can't remember. But the, the reason why I bring up the score is when we talk about that Halloween mood. The thing that always strikes me about it's Christopher Demon. Young who did. Uh, I'm not familiar with Christopher Young. Oh, I'm not either. Well, I, the Clifton Parker score for Night of the Demon sounds traditional Halloween scary music. <clears throat> uh, I, I mean, it's 
it doesn't it's not thematic in any way but in terms of the swell of the orchestra and when the demon comes out and everything else it just it has that spooky haunted house um vibe to it that i just really sets the mood for that film and drag me to hell i for some reason in my head i'm always thinking was that elfman because it it just oh it does sound you know yeah I don't think I like Alison Lohman very much either. Not to like throw shade, but uh, I don't know. Um, so <laughs> it's funny watching these back to back. Like Lohman and Justin Long, who plays her boyfriend, I was not rooting for them as much as I was for Dana Andrews. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Peggy. Cummings. So and, and just like this is a question because. She was trying, so in the car, she has that audio tape and she's working on enunciation and th- she was trying to get her country accent to go away, right? Or Yeah, because uh, I, I thought that's what it, she was like trying to go through that whole makeover Yeah, because she lost a bunch of weight. Because at first I was like, oh, did yeah. she have a stutter or something like that? And then they showed the picture of her being fat holding the pig. And I was like, oh, maybe she was country and, you know, country people can't work at banks because that makes you look stupid, I guess. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. Be proud of where you're from, Again, Allison, or well, but Kristen. Still, it's the it's the difference between scripts, right? Yeah, that that script doesn't hold a candle tonight. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, Drag Me to Hell is is a bit of a visual tour de force in terms of it. It's very kinetic. Um, it's almost like a Looney Tunes horror movie a little bit in terms of how it plays with. I mean, that seance sequence with the goat and everything else. It's not so scary as soon as that goat gets possessed. You're kind of chuckling a little bit. Um, and it plays right into like Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 2 territory. Uh, and Night of the Demon, you know, even that seance, it's a little goofy, but it serves a purpose for that character to kind of go, oh, yeah, seances, um, not real. They're, they're, it's, it's a hoax. It's a scam. We're being set up. And it propels the plot and that character a little bit. Whereas Drag Me to Hell, that seance is more of a, it, it's, it's, comedic and i don't know if it serves a plot outside of well we can't get rid of the demon this way so you got to go give that button to somebody yeah also drag me to hell that is it Deleep rio the guy who plays the rom i guess is the guy's name oh the palm yeah. reader or yeah dude i like him a lot and he doesn't he isn't in much he's like an avatar he's in inception he plays a pretty big part in inception and then that's right. like it like I like him a lot. I thought, because when we went back to watch Drag Me to Hell, I'm like, oh, yeah, I like this guy. He's really good. And then I looked. Well, what I'm was like, the last thing that he was in? Because uh... now that you mention it, I'm like, outside of Inception, what was the last thing he was I in? I know he's in Avatar, so he's going to be in all the Avatar, probably in all the Avatar sequels. So he's going to get that check. <laughs> so he's just doing that then. Murder well, with of those... a cat? Huh? Murder of a Cat was one of his movies. Okay. I don't know. I'm looking at some of his filmography and extracurricular activities in 2019 as Ronnie. Wow. I'm not. Mr. Robot? That's TV show, yep. right? Okay. So, hey, he's working. That's good. Yeah. I, I, I wish him well. I really like him. So, um, yeah, he's fun. I don't know. Drag, Drag Me to Hell was a fun visit. Um, <laughs> but in hindsight, I'm kind of glad we didn't just spend an entire show on that film. Knowing what I know now for sure. Yeah. Night of the demon. I mean, I, I night and day, in my opinion, in terms of quality, everything else. Agreed. Yep. Yep. Well, um, 
what else about Night of the Demon or Drag Me to Hell? I mean, they're, they're, hey, folks, watch them back to back. It's it's a fun comparison, but um, you, you might, you know, get a little angry at the Raimis for stealing. stealing yeah. They're stealing. I mean, if you turn uh, that in no. for a college paper, do you think they get in for plagiarism? Well, how does that work? I'm so confused. I, I'm hoping somebody can explain it to me. Like, how do you get... So Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs was kind of accused of, I don't know, stealing the idea or the script for uh, uh, Ringo Lamb's City on Fire, which I am fat, right? Um, so is this this does this fall into the same kind of thing where everybody's like throwing shade at Raimi for basically taking another film? I don't I, think I, so. I don't, I don't know how it works. Okay. Well, heck, nobody's seen Night of yeah, the Demon, in the my problem. opinion. So I think when they, you know. I, and I don't know how many times this story's been done at all outside of Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, I mean, it's a simple movie. Like, I feel like you could do this over and over. And, I mean, as long as you kind of give credit where credit is due, it's fine. Like, I don't mind you getting inspiration from a source and then doing what you will with it. I mean, hell, that's what hip-hop is all about, is you hear you hear a song <laughs> and you make a beat out of it, and then you turn into a different song. Like, I get it. Um so Sam Raimi is the equivalent of hip hop. He is the puff. He's the Demon. puff daddy, if you will. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so I can live with that. <laughs> well, what else about Night of the Demon? I mean, outside of go watch. Yeah, it, I was super impressed. Um, you know, if you can, if you can get it. Um, actually, um, when I went to go look the other day, it's actually a little bit easier to chase down than just the physical version. Now, you and I have talked about how we like to own stuff because we're weird but you can you can find this um streaming places um i think itunes had it to stream um uh so it's not it's not night of the demons there's only one demon no that's a different yeah, that film. Is a different film so be careful because you will get uh, you, and specifically you're looking for 1957 because i think there's another night of the demon film yeah you can there. rent it on like apple Amazon, YouTube, Vudu. Yeah, so you can get it. If you just want to rent it and just check it out first, um, do that. Yeah, and heck, if you don't if you don't want all the special features, I mean, I, I got to say this, that Indicator Blu-ray is fantastic. I mean, I spent three hours plus and didn't get through all the special features. It lets you choose the um, aspect ratio. <laughs> it does. It's, I mean, I, I have to say, like, this is one of the best Blu-ray releases I own. Um, hands down in terms of everything around this film um, what I what I think is interesting too is it, the 82 minute version it's not just deleted sequences but they actually change the sequencing of some scenes yeah like the and, first time he meets the doctor is not in the library library yeah, yeah. okay so yeah, there's and there's a yeah, whole which little we have to special say, feature that, that goes through. There's that. a library shot of this. It's the British Museum and he goes yes. into this reading room. It is amazing. Like the British Library looks so great. Like it's a beautiful looking library. It's like, man, remember libraries? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good yeah. old days, pre-pandemic. Um no, it's and you know what, if uh if you don't care about special features and you just want a good print, there's uh, Amazon sells the DVD that has both cuts on it. I have that one. That's the one I watched for the longest time. So as you said, there's streaming options on this thing. If you really like it and you want to dig into it and know all the behind the scenes of it and even hear somebody read you the short story, hear the radio play of the short story, have 
four versions to choose from and everything else. I mean, I I cannot recommend this release enough. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. If you're halfway interested from our conversation, I would say go watch it and and kind of surprise yourself because you're gonna gonna really like it. I agree. So are are we're both in agreement on this one? This is 100 percent not yeah, a not bomb. a bomb at all. Okay. Um, I have a question for you, and, and I know I'm springing this on you. We, we used to do a lot of film rankings, and we'll, we'll get back to that, but we, we ranked the Donnie Yen films because that uh, was, uh, for that month, we just said, hey, you know, between one and four and Master Z, where did we rank those on qualities? I mean, we went through four different and unique horror films, and I think it's hard to rank yeah. them because they're not they're not coming – from the same source yeah, yeah they're they're not going for the same thing you know some in scares some in laughs some in something totally different is it possible to rank these four uh yeah i think i could probably rank the four um how, how would you i do would it? do I, I think i know what i my would do night is. i would do chopping mall i would do event horizon and then i would do tenebrae <laughs> I, mine's close okay. it, it would be night Chopping Mall, Tenebrae, Event Horizon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and don't get me wrong, all four are great. Um, I have to go back and listen to an episode because I did talk with somebody. What what surprised me is how many people liked Event Horizon, which I didn't know. Um and and they've got a new special edition coming out in January from Shout Factory. Um and somebody said, Oh no, on uh, on the episode you sided with Charlie and, and said it was bad. And I, I thought that you I You were said, lukewarm I, on the I, not a you were said it's not a bomb, but you were lukewarm. Yeah, I said I'm I'm lukewarm on it, like Charlie, but I'm going the yeah, other way, yeah. right? Okay, I'll go back and definitely listen to yeah. it. But for hey, this is this is for John and Mia. If you're listening, even Brad confirmed I liked yeah. it. I didn't say it was. You didn't a like bomb. it as much as I me, just, but you know. Yes, no, I agree. But I, I would, I, hey, I pre-ordered the Blu-ray, so I'm excited to go see it again. Although your review of the 4K's got me a little. Yeah, worried. it doesn't look great. Okay. Um, well, man, I'm I'm kind of sad to see October go. I was having so much fun with all these films, and there's so many other genres we didn't even get. To. I know, I know, horror is weird, um, just in general. But like, you know, we didn't even get into body horror or uh, psychological thrillers or anything like that. So, if we're doing this next year, Troy, we've got you know a stepping off point where we can um, really take this somewhere different next time. So. I agree. And, and what's funny is I, I know when we were trying to pick movies for this, it it was weird to look at the 80s and go, wow, you could do an entire year on just bombs that came out in the yeah. 80s on horror films. Um, and it got a little bit harder to find the bombs theatrical uh, in today's market because it just seems like, you know, horror movies do so. well. Yeah, because they have a micro uh, budget. And, you know, if you're a Blumhouse and you're released in 2500 theaters, you're going to make. 12 to 15 million dollars your opening weekend and you're on a five million dollar budget and after that you're just making money so yeah okay well what's what's november's theme i mean we're so we're doing another theme month in november uh and we're again we're not tackling our original list of of movie bombs we wanted to talk about we'll probably get to in that january, we talked january about january i don't know but you came up with this idea for november and i thought it was pretty funny so um what, what are we doing in november so we're doing movies that are considered turkeys so they're so bad that they're good um originally 
we were talking about this film. I'm not going to say it because we're going to do it like early January. And I don't want to spoil it, but we were talking about a film and then we were both like, wait a minute. That's, that's a good movie. It's not bad. It's really good. And <laughs> we both just got the 4k and we're like, we just wanted a reason to watch it, but we'll get to it. Um, but we're going down the road where we're going to watch films kind of in the, maybe kind of treading in the same waters as like chopping mall. Cause you know, they're like really fun, but they're kind of dumb and stupid and they're not kind of, they are, they, they are. are dumb. Um, yeah. every, every one of them that we have lined out for next month, make no mistake, check your brain at the door. They make no sense. Um, I, I, I would even go so far to say is some pretty poor filmmaking yes. in each one yes. of them. Terrible. If you will. Um, Terrible. Yeah. I mean, and not classic like plan nine. If you, if you want to hear about plan nine or, I think we did that with Rhinestone yeah, you can. when we did movie matchup. I think and you can go back and listen to that. So we're 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 trying to find some uncharted gems. <laughs> yes. Right? So for episode number twenty one, Troy. Your pick, yes. right? What do you got? We man? are going with the nineteen eighty seven uh Wu Sung Park directed uh Miami <laughs> connection. Um wow. for people who don't know, it's like a martial arts like rock band. Um Fights some ninjas, ninjas, motorcycle ninjas. Something. Yeah. I believe they're. What's funny is you're picking that film in how action genre by itself has dumb movies like Schwarzenegger dumb movies, but they're fun. I This is a whole new version of dumb. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be so much fun to watch, though. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's it, yeah. It kind of takes the sting out of going out of Spooktober. So we needed another like, hey, let's let's do something for November, and then hey, let's do something for December. So we're gonna get back to the list in January, and that'll be here before yes. we know it. But <clears throat> yeah, no, that'll be fun. And and for anybody playing along, I mean, th- this is readily available to yeah, yeah. To it's get, streaming, right? and um, actually, I think there's like a really good Blu-ray out. Um, that just yes, came I out have it. recently within the last few years. That's really, really nice. So I have that. I, I want to say it's Alamo, Alamo Draft, Draft House. House. Their, yeah, yep. their film line actually uh, brought this restoration back and put it out on blue. Um, so if you can find that, it's it's a great release. So Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. Um, and the other movies that we have, I, you know, we're not, we're not going to spoil it yet, but man, I can't wait. Can't wait. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for your second pick and um, dropping my two. But uh, so, Brad, if anybody wants to reach out, talk to us, send us feedback, um, tell us how wrong we are about our opinion, or you know, boost our ego and tell us how right we are, because uh, we don't. We're married. We we don't get enough of that, to be honest. So, any help in in telling us we're right, uh, we would really love that. But Brad, how would they? Um, how would they reach I out? I just to want us? to make a note. I liked. The film that we talked about tonight. So people make a note. I liked it. Okay. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. And you almost said you loved it. No, I did love it. I do love this movie. Oh, you yeah. did. Oh, see. Yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. You just bucked the trend. Yeah. So anybody was Ben. Was he the last yeah. one that uh, said yeah. you hated everything? Ben. Brad does not hate everything. Um, so if you want to get in <laughs> touch with us, that's uh, not a bomb pod at gmail.com. Um, again, January, we're going to start to go back to the list, but we're always accepting suggestions. Um, if you want to find us on Twitter, that's at not a bomb pod Instagram. I believe is not a bomb pod. Um, search for us on Facebook. 
Um, and what else, Troy? Uh, I just want to say a big thank you again. It, it was a bit of a surprise, but uh, the Mister of Horror and Housewife of Horror sending us a Absolutely. happy Halloween message to share with all you guys. Um, please, if you if you if you dig horror hosts, you you can't go wrong. These two are super charming, and um, like I said, my daughter and I have a lot of fun watching them. Uh, the family loves them, but um, check it out. You know, find Suburban Screams on Roku or Amazon uh, Prime. And uh, tune in to Housewife of Horror. Uh, Suburban Screams is really fun. There's another show on there I like called He's Crafty. And it's this guy that shows how he builds, like, um, my favorite episode. So, you know the poster of The Thing, the John Carpenter The Thing? Yeah. So, it's the guy in the snowsuit that has, like, the glowing yeah, thing that's out a of his Drew's face. Reason. And, yeah, he's got tentacles coming out of his hands that look all gross. This guy builds it in his garage um, through just like plastics and stuff like that. And it is hilarious. What? Okay. Yeah. So he, he did another one where he's like, oh, if you want to make a bloody ghost sheet for your Halloween decoration. And who doesn't? Let me show you how to do this with. <laughs> yeah. So um, he's crafty is another thing to check out on Suburban Screams. But, you know, don't go there first. Go check out Housewife of Horror. Um, and I think they said they're working on their 2020 Halloween special to be released anytime. Um, so I'm personally looking forward to that, but, um, yeah, check it out. And then if you got a film, uh, or a short, submit it to the Suburban Screams Film Festival and, uh, we'll try and put some links and stuff on there for the show notes, yeah. but, um, oh, and check out, uh, Alex McAllister's Friends with Cinefets. Um, yes. I think he just had his last, no, uh, well, yeah, they had did just oh, got one more get out. Um, and actually yes. he's doing the shining next week, which now he's, he, he said some not so perfect things about scream. If he doesn't, if, if this episode of the shining comes out bad, he's off, he's out. We, we did send him a strongly worded email yeah. about his opinion on scream. So he has a rating system <clears throat> of one, two, and three, and he gave scream the classic, yeah. Just one of the most important. Wes Craven scream. One of the yeah. most important modern horror movies of all time. Just kind of kicked horror, you know, back into the zeitgeist. Yeah. You know, whatever. He said, you know, I'm going to give it a middle of the road grade and say two. It should have been a three. Heck, it should have been a five yeah. on his rating scale. Between one through three, Scream is a five. So we did put him in timeout for a little bit. Um, we're, we'll give him a second chance here. We'll see what he. We'll, we'll see what yeah, he says. Fool me show. once. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is awesome, Brad. I'm, I, like I said, I'm I'm kind of sad we're leaving October, but the next time we get together to record, we'll be in Turkey Month, and we get to uh, talk about our first turkey. Miami Connection. Oh, man. Please, everybody, play along next month. It's going to be a blast. Uh, what else, Brad? Are we missing anything? No, man. It's good talking to you. Uh, it's always good talking to you. Um, and we'll get to do it again here shortly. So... Uh, folks, as always, can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen to us. And um, if you're listening to this in the morning or the evening, hope you're having an awesome day and we'll catch you next week. Thank you and have a nice day.